Welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and, of course, the innovation ecosystem. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. We're going to find out, first, what's new at this year's biggest little air show. Ad Murata and Burl Burlingham are here to tell us all about it. And then we'll explore the Internet of Things, both from a technical and social point of view. What are the uh, opportunities and, of course, challenges we'll find everything uh, when everything is connected to the Internet. But yes, first off, we want to welcome Anne and Burl from the Pacific Aviation Museum to tell us about their upcoming Biggest Little Air Show. Welcome to our big talkie geek show. <laughs> talkie geek show. <laughs> hey, guys. You're our favorite talkie geeks. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Um, yeah, Big Air Show is coming up. Hashtag Big Air Show is what we like to use in social media. Um, and just tell up. us, how many years has this been? This is our 10th. Wow, We're really excited to have 10 years under our belt, so it gets better and bigger every year. Um, we have pilots from the mainland that fly in called Warbirds West, and they do amazing aerobatics and uh, choreographed shows, paying homage this year to the World War II 75th. Mm-hmm. Uh, anniversary of Midway and mm-hmm. uh, Pearl Harbor, of course. So there'll be a lot of uh, dogfights with uh, World War II planes, a lot of dancing in the sky, nice. pyrotechnics, candy droppings, and we'll have a full-on festival on the ground, which will also have Hangar 79 opened up with lots of activities, lots of aircraft open up so the guests can get in and be in the cockpits and put on flight suits and take pictures. We'll you know, have a the, full-on uh, food food and, and uh, beer tents. These, these uh, pilots that come in to fly these uh, miniature planes, they're primarily, a lot of them are part of a club on, on the mainland, right? Well, the the ones that are coming Warbirds West are a club from the mainland. Mm-hmm. We also have local clubs that fly with us every year. But you say miniature. These things are one-fifth scale. Well, they can, you know, fly at 200 miles an hour and cost $16,000. So they're Faster and more expensive than cars most of the time. Yeah, mm. and I, I don't mean you know like model size, but they are they're big. They're nice and uh, and the cool uh, thing expensive is too, right? When I they're mean, in the air, you really can't tell the difference. If can the you, pilot's Earl? really good, he can fly it smooth, and he doesn't get the sort of jiggle in the wings oh. that a, a novice uh, radio control pilot yeah. gets in it. You can't tell. Because you're, you know, there's nothing in between you and the plane, so you can't gauge the distance. And of course, you're hearing Burl Burlingame, and he's like the what the historian over at the Pacific Aviation That's Museum. Me. And this year has been a pretty active year in a lot of different events that you folks have sponsored. I'm like a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. <laughs> <laughs> I like the imagery. <laughs> we we not only have the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Midway this month is the 90th anniversary of the Lindbergh flight. Hmm. Next month is the 90th anniversary of the first flight to Hawaii. The month after that, the first civilian flight to Hawaii. The month after that, the anniversary of the Dole Derby. It's also the 50th anniversary uh, of Vietnam, the the commemorative commission. And we actually, for people who are going to visit the museum, we have a major new airplane that's going to be dedicated this Saturday. It's the F-105 Thunder Chief, the largest single-engine fighter ever produced and it's a monster and our guys put it together in the last couple of weeks and it's really something to see. Hmm. Can you share any story of what this aircraft was in in you know some battle uh, situation? As, as typical of uh, American aircraft from the 1950s it was designed to drop nuclear bombs on the Soviet Union and wound up dropping World War II bombs flying very slow over Vietnam. And uh, it was designed to go very, very fast, more than Mach 2, uh, to Hmm. deliver nuclear bombs. And in Vietnam, it became the bomber of choice. It did three-fourths of the uh, bomber sorties over North Vietnam. The one we have is a two-seater. 
and F-105G. And those are the ones that flew wild weasel missions where a pilot and an electronic operations officer would monitor the surface-to-air missiles. And we're dedicating this plane in the name of Leo Thorsness, who died two weeks ago, and he was supposed to be here for the dedication. Mm. He was an F-105 pilot who won the Medal of Honor over Vietnam by sacrificing his position to other airplanes during a big air battle. And a couple weeks after that, he was shot down, and he became John McCain's cellmate at the Hanoi Hilton. Wow. Some great stories. Uh, I mean, and all the planes that you have in, you know, in Hangar, what, 79? I mean, there's some incredible stories that are associated with all those planes. Well, you know, airplanes are one thing, but people are another. Mm-hmm. And we tell this, we proselytize the magic of aviation. You know, we're, we're, we're there, you know, preaching that aviation has changed the world. And it's not just World War II. It is, you know, getting off the ground and seeing the world in 3D. It just ch- getting beyond the horizon is something that's changed philosophy as well as travel. Mm-hmm. And? and and the biggest little air show brings it all back home to the families and to the children of the of Hawaii and the visitors come also. But it really brings aviation back home. So they get to see the large planes all opened up. They can get in them. They get to see the fifth scale uh, warbirds and jets flying in the air. There's all kinds of aviation activities. So. We're very our our mission is education, so we really bring it home to everybody with the air, with the biggest little air show. Well, mm-hmm. thanks to you and um, working with uh, the Bite Marks community, I've been I've really enjoyed bringing my family every year, and I agree that you know it's it's about education, it's about that history and the stories about people, and this is a museum that a lot of people who live in Hawaii, I think, don't know about or or find the time to visit. It's out on Fort Island. You think that that's hard to get to, but that's not the case for this special event. Oh, right. right. I almost forgot to tell you, you can drive onto Fort Island Saturday and Sunday, June 3rd and 4th. The gates will be up. They're allowing you to drive. There'll also be a free shuttle down at the Pearl Harbor Visitor Center if you don't want to drive, but you can drive on, bring your family. No coolers, no outside food or beverage, because we're going to have lots of good food and beverage there. But uh, yeah, parking is free. It'll be. It's just treating itself to drive on to Ford Island because it's so historic itself. Yeah, in fact, um, people on uh, the Facebook page where we're talking about this event, we're talking about the strafe marks that are still visible on on the grounds there on Ford Island. And in the windows of our Hangar 79, you can right. see the bullet holes. I actually have a problem with the strafe marks. We'll cover that in a future edition. <laughs> ah, okay. Good. Oh, you have a problem with that. So you may, <laughs> what, they may eventually get kind of paved well, over? Well, let's, or let's put it this way. I had a uh, gunnery expert out there uh, last month, and we looked down at him, and he immediately said, jackhammer. Huh. Oh, so there's some question as to whether... Yeah, they... I, we did some basic math, and the... Bullet holes are three inches apart, and we did basic math, and they should be 35 feet apart. Ah, given the speed of given an airplane the of, and the position. But, oh. but don't let Burl take the romance out of the place. <laughs> no, no. We, <laughs> do have, we do have real bomb craters, and we do have real strafe marks, <laughs> and we do have real bullet holes from the attack in our windows in Hangar 79. We so the, the romance thing. is still there. We got the real thing, and the small planes fly just like the real thing. Mm-hmm. Physics is the same. <laughs> I enjoy taking pictures of them, as you said, because when you're framing your shot, it could, it, it might as well be the full-size airplane. It, yeah. It's beautiful. Except they oh, can yeah. do a lot more, actually. Yeah. So, Anne, tell us, uh, how can people actually sign up for this? And maybe you can share a little bit about the special promo we have. Oh, you guys, only for the Bite Marks Cafe, guys, we have a special promo. If you'll go to... Well, a, that's all the listeners, too, right? Yeah. Well, they, that's what I mean. These are all the Bite Marks <laughs> listeners. We have a special promo. Just go online and to um, uh, find the Bite Marks uh, page. 
and there'll be some tickets there for you. So. so what we'll do is we'll put the link on the show notes later on tonight, and there will be a promo code associated with it, which is pretty easy. It's called Bite Marks. That's I think we can code. remember yeah. that. And uh, <laughs> you, you sign up. you get the, the beauty is that you'll get access to the VIP. Yes, tip. we consider our Bite Marks guys our VIP uh, press kind of guys. So. so is there a website for general information? Yes. Or if you somehow wanted Tickets to. Tickets are only $5. Right. I mean, support, okay, so the, mu- support yes. the museum. Pacific Aviation Museum. Dot org. Very good. Well, thanks, Ann and Bro, for joining us today. Thank you very Absolutely. much. We appreciate it. Thank you. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be talking about Internet of Things with Matt Levy from HPU. Don't go away. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. I especially like to listen to uh, Marketplace. I find that I'm on the road around that time and that it's very uh, informative. Um, Sometimes I'll be driving when StoryCorps comes on, and those segments always make my eyes well up a little bit, and then I have to regain my composure before I go to the office in the morning. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. Now joining us is Matt Levy. And, of course, Matt is an assistant professor of information systems over at Hawaii Pacific University. He's also the chair of the Master's of Science in Information Systems program over at HPU. Now, what does it mean to have everything connected to the Internet? Are there great benefits and unintended consequences? I think the answer is yes. But to answer that in more detail, welcome to the show, Matt. Hi, how are you doing? Great to now, be here. Now, Matt, you know, we're going to first have you give us the 10-second the definition of what is the Internet of Things? Oh, goodness. Doing it in 10 seconds is hard. Uh, it's, it's, it's a euphemism, first of all, but uh, to just do it in 10 seconds, I would say it's probably a fundamental shift in our consciousness as to when we are and aren't connected to the Internet. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, there was a time when, of course, everybody was uh, getting their computers connected to the Internet, getting their smartphones connected to the Internet, but now just about every device that you might be purchasing may have some kind of connection to the Internet. So everything is, you know, that's kind of the Internet of Things. That's that's right. And also with that, there is uh, a number of different, uh, you know, technical and social implications that go along with that. Uh, for example, you have uh, a lot of security concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we first saw... A lot of different, I think one of the first instances of realizing how uh, an Internet-connected device could be hacked uh, was with the Stuxnet virus, which if you might remember, maybe to mm-hmm. our listeners who don't, who might not remember what exactly that happened there, it was basically a, uh, a Windows device driver that was controlling a procedural logic controller that was uh, uh, controlling the centrifuges uh, for uranium enrichment in Iran, somehow or another, uh, some malware that I think either uh, the United States or Israel has kind of maybe uh, eventually claimed responsibility for one way or the other, uh, that malware got into the network uh, and um, was able to uh, 
thwart a lot of their uranium enrichment programs. Since then, uh, there's been some other viruses or other uh, forms of malware that have, uh, you know, caused some harm. For example, there was a um, virus called Mirai that uh, was on the uh, that got a hold of the DNS servers for the Dyn Corporation. Uh, and caused significant damage through a a distributed denial of service uh, attack. The point of that is, is that it was a distributed denial of service attack on a level that we hadn't seen. And that level was because it originated from IP cameras and home routers that had older versions of Linux. Mm -hmm. uh, And it was distributed throughout those mechanisms as opposed to servers and things like that. Right. Previously, you would company. say people would com- their computers would be compromised and my computer would be part of a robot army to attack Bert's website. But now it's the security camera, it's my washing machine, it's my fridge, it's anything that has an internet connection. And more importantly, because these embedded systems are generally not updated or supported, they're easy to compromise and then be used in this sort of zombie-like way. Yeah, there was a recent article that came out that said that the that device management for the Internet of Things or the industry for device management was going to increase uh, three to fourfold over the next two years. So being able to maintain this incre- these increasing amounts of devices which are uh, making their way onto the Internet, which, you know, when I did some stuff with the California state legislator about a year and a half. The statistics were that by 2020, there was going to be 20 to 25 billion internet connected devices. Those statistics have now been updated to be 30 to 35 billion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so um, there's just an increasing amount of management that goes along with all these devices that are connected to the internet and trying to keep things secure. Has the problem been, you know, initially that a lot of these devices, they're relatively low cost, so the amount of security that's built into any of the routers, you know, some of the, let's say, baby cams that are that are connected to the Internet is, is rudimentary, I guess, and, and are easily compromised. And now the realization is they have to up, you know, up the security on all of those devices. It's that, and it's just really hard to keep track of all of them, right? They continue to make their way onto the Internet uh, people continue to uh, want these types of function, this type of functionality uh, in the devices that they have in their home, uh, and even devices that they have to you know, facilitate different forms of medical care. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just be- becomes increasingly hard to track that. So that's the other side. That's you know, so one side of the equation is the security concerns and what can potentially happen if you have. Uh, your refrigerator, your toaster, or uh, you know your your baby cam, or something on the internet. But then it, there's a bit of a duality there, and the other part of that is uh, the potential that the Internet of Things actually has. For example, how can we use different sensors that may track uh, alcohol consumption, cortisol, uh, blood sugar, uh, blood sugar, glucose intake? Uh, to be able to have more information about the health of a community. Mm-hmm. How can doctors use that information to make more data-driven decisions? You know, right now we have a, a, a paradigm in the United States uh, with regard to health care where if, you know, I might have the statistics flip-flop, but we're somewhere uh, around 41st for life expectancy and somewhere around 45th uh, for uh, infant mortality, uh, where there's 
not enough resources. And that, of course, those statistics are there for a lot of reasons. Um, but um, there's not enough resources to be able to do different forms of preventative care. What if the sensors could actually represent themselves uh, as data that helps people with preventative care? Well, you know, Ryan and his uh, startup, which is uh, Smart Yields, I mean, their whole business model revolves around uh, having sensors in basically Hundreds agricultural, farms, agricultural environments. Right. You right. can derive value from data across a, a very diverse set rather than the old statistical way of sampling and trying to make conclusions based on that. Mm-hmm. So, Matt, you know, you talked about security being a concern, certainly that these devices aren't as secure and can be used as attack vectors. Um, I think the other side that uh, you hear a lot about is about the privacy considerations. You have uh, stories about smart TVs that might be listening to you or uh, the uh, law enforcement trying to subpoena your Amazon uh, Alexa for the recordings it made in your house in case you said something incriminating. And certainly you have a lot of controversy even here in Hawaii about smart meters tracking your energy usage. And is that an undue violation of your privacy? Um, is there a way to navigate our way through those waters or is it basically come down to litigation? Well, I just I don't have answers, but really just more questions. And I think one of the questions that uh, that what you say alludes to is who owns that data. Um, you know the the current way that we you know that our institutions work is that uh, when these when we start using these devices, uh, a company owns that data, right? Uh, Google or you know maybe maybe some of the other major gatekeepers on the internet largely own that data. Um, what happens when this data that is more personal to us is also owned by that company. How far do we take that? How far does that go? Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of you know the um, idea of taking all this big data and actually analyzing it, I mean, it really boils down to the algorithms that can analyze it and how do the different companies that have access to that data really do something with it. Right. Uh, So that touches on another very interesting point related to all of this. And, um, and, and one of, and that is the algorithms, which uh, are things that uh, uh, Congress and a number of different states have pushed for more openness on. uh, But that is incredibly, incredibly difficult to have and to do. Because, uh, for example, I have a friend whose brother works in encrypted search at Google. And uh, that's the only part of the building that's secure. That's the only part of the Google campus, the whole Google campus in Mountain View that is secure because that represents the, the root core of their intellectual property. So knowing about what these algorithms do and how they work uh, is, is the thing that is most protected by some of these major companies that are uh, both allowing us to use these wonderful software applications and and devices that they also sell along with it, uh, but also, um, you know, are increasingly masked from, you know, how our data is being used and what they're doing with it. Right. The algorithm is a secret sauce and the benefit that they deliver and therefore their market uh, advantage. But as a result, when you say secret sauce, it's also something that you can't audit or examine or pick apart to say, actually, I kind of disagree with the way these decisions are being recommended or this information is being sorted because you're not allowed to take a look at that. Um, well, uh, you talked a little bit about, you know, these 
amazing tools and these amazing uh, uh, applications. Can we talk a little bit about the benefit side of the you know, nebulous description of the Internet of Things. Now, I can think of many people even in my life who when you say, well, your toaster is going to be connected and your washing machine is going to be connected and your pillow and your toothbrush, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a nightmare scenario for them. But uh, <laughs> what would you say is, I mean, but clearly there are market forces pushing in that direction. So what is it that they're trying to deliver as a benefit to consumers? Well, what are these companies? Let me get make sure I've got your question right. Sure. What are what are these companies trying to deliver as a benefit to to us, the consumer? Right? Or that clearly you want to buy this connected toothbrush because it's part of a larger motion toward this Internet of Things, where everything is connected. Uh, surely there must be an upside, or is there? no upside to that kind of connectivity. Well, I think that what we're largely going to see is uh, a push to make these devices cheaper by some of the companies uh, on the internet who, you know, some of these very, you know, internet, internet economy companies such as Google, Facebook, Yelp, uh, and, and some of the major internet gatekeepers to try and make these different devices uh, as cheap as possible so that they can get access to information, right? It's it's the information economy, being able to use this information for uh, more, um, dare I say, subversive targeted advertising, or maybe just more effective targeted advertising that increases your likelihood uh, of of buying something that's uh, tailored for what you need or, when, or a particular ailment you have or something like that. Well, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, part of the question is, you know, I would hate to see... After the show, everybody start disconnecting <laughs> their devices to the internet because, you know, they heard that you know the the, <laughs> the, the their security is going to get compromised or you know the uh, the fact that the more connected they are, the more vulnerable they might be. So there is got to be there's got to be an upside, and with oh, all the yeah. big data that's being uh, gathered and analyzed, and you know, and and the applications that are created as a result of. Um, there are services that are being delivered that I think could benefit us. And uh, I think, you know, as an example, I mean, Google just announced their uh, Google Assistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good user interface to have some information delivered very quickly to you. I mean, and that's all because there's a lot of data, there's, a, there's AI built into it, and it can be delivered in a pretty uh, quick and, and, and uh, basically cost-effective manner. Yeah, I don't want to paint it with a negative light per se. I think that uh, there's huge potential uh, for uh, things like Google Assistant and all the different ways that these uh, you know technologies can make life more efficient and convenient for you. Uh, but I think the other thing to also remember uh, with innovation and technology in general is that it's a statistical upside, right? It's 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 a probabilistic upside, and so it may have you know. 97% uh, upside potential or upside with respect to in- efficiency and convenience in your life. But then there are the risks that come along mm-hmm. with it and mm-hmm. the things that you give up along with it as well. And I think that uh, you, you touched on this. These companies are businesses and they need to make them money. So Google wants to know more about you to deliver better ads. Uh, you know, uh, Amazon wants to be everywhere in your house so they know that they can think ahead and when to suggest you need to buy more fabric softener or toothpaste. So sure, let's have everything connected mm-hmm. because we know you make toast every morning. We're going to push uh, jam- jams, jellies, and, and a and nice bread. knife set <laughs> at 
Matthew. And speaking of Amazon, they're really doing a lot to prepare for uh, the Internet of Things. They have their IoT framework that they've come out with. And then uh, I was also looking at a limited preview edition of what they have called Greengrass. I don't know if you've Ooh. seen this, but it's basically uh, it's allowing uh, certain amounts. And this, of course, is temporal because as devices become and sensors and these small things that you know we wear and are connected to us become uh, more powerful, it allows there to be um, serverless data processing on the devices themselves. And so they're trying to really own the space from the cloud platform, from the compute platform, all the way down to the sensor. Mm-hmm. And so they've really been kind of pushing that as well. And you know, we're, we're talking to uh, Matt Levy. He's uh, assistant professor over at HPU in the uh, information, well, uh, information systems department, and we're talking about IoT. And you know, Matt, I, I was wondering, in terms of you know our listeners and people who are looking at devices and purchasing p- potentially you know IoT devices, are there any recommendations you might want to rec- you know suggest for them to look for or look at, or are there let's say best practices they should consider when when connecting these devices to to the internet? Well. Um if you want to kind of understand what you're looking at uh, in terms of potentially what you're exposing yourself to, I mean, the potential for uh, for convenience and efficiency and improving your health and all that type of thing, that's going to be in your face. That's going to be obvious, right? I that's mean, on the box. <laughs> yeah, that's on the box. That's mm-hmm. what they're selling to mm-hmm. you. Uh, but there are a few websites. There's one called IOTforall.com, and then there's the IoT Security Foundation, uh, which mm. exposes... Uh, both you know consumers and people who are working with the technology to some of the issues that they're dealing with, uh, so that could also be helpful as well. Um, you know, I will also say there's not a lot of resources out there yet uh, that um, kind of for, with respect to consumer awareness. Uh, because this is still kind of a new thing, and I think a lot of the traditional consumer organizations are a bit wrestling with what to do with uh, you know this new type of product that's that's there and that's available you know, and, the, and the concerns. I, I think that in many cases this happens with technology. It's advancing so fast and permeating our lives so fast that the other controls that might be in place have yet to evolve. I mean, I there are connected toothbrushes and people are buying them and pl- connecting them to their Wi-Fi and I don't think anyone's really thought through all of that. It's just like, this is cool. I want a Wi-Fi enabled toothbrush. <laughs> but uh, there, that checklist, you know, we're still developing that. What's the privacy policy? What's the data retention policy? If the company gets acquired, can they sell or pass on that data? These are things that people should ask, but there isn't a consumer reports yet to do that for people. Right. And then also, I mean, uh, you, the as you know, you, you spoke about the, you know, kind of alluding to these types of innovations. We we know that the innovation will will make its way to market for one reason or another. Uh, you know, the 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 upside potential will make its way to market and and be in the hands of consumers before you know it, and and then. There, and then the downside risk, uh, you know, largely becomes things that you either kind of have to accept uh, because at that point they have your data um, and and then also, you know, the security implications that may come along with and the things that you have to do as a consumer. Right. These are things that mm. if, if we've looked at innovation and particularly a lot of the innovation that's come out of Silicon Valley for the last 30 years, this is how it's come to be. So, Matt, where can people find out more information about uh, some of the work that you're doing? Well, 
my work in particular uh, with respect to the Internet of Things specifically has been uh, with uh, different legislatures and things like that. However, um, uh, I kind of look at larger issues and how um, technology and social justice comes together. All right. Well, we'll put those links you recommend on our show notes. Thank you very much, Matt, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, uh, Matt Levy is the assistant professor over at uh, HPU uh, in in Information Systems. Thanks uh, for joining us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about the coconut rhinoceros beetle invasive species program. And if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. If you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And, of course, you stay safe this Memorial Day. We'll see you back here next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Come on.